Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm sure that all of you listeners have noticed the rising number of disasters calling forth extraordinary levels of rescue and rebuilding, like what happened after the hurricanes Katrina and Sandy, and the rampant fires brought on by drought in the western USA. Correlated with climate change and showing no signs of slowing, the regular channels of response via FEMA, the Red Cross, or other organizations are inadequate. So a new group has been created called the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief Network. Their motto is Solidarity, Not Charity, and this should cue you into a different way that they proceed, empowering and supplementing those on the ground with the strength and insights to help one another in the midst of catastrophe. Today we meet with Tyler Norman of the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief Network to help find a better way forward in dealing with daunting but not necessarily overwhelming crises. Tyler Norman joins us via phone from Madison, Wisconsin. Tyler, it's good to have you back for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. And to have you in Wisconsin. Now, you were off with the Beehive Collective and traveling a lot as part of that before. How long have you been situated back in Wisconsin? I've been here for a a couple of years, off and on. I have continued to do a little bit of the traveling education work through this new organization, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. We do have an educational component to our work. We're doing a really interesting workshop that was all about community organizing as disaster preparedness. But I have returned back to the Madison area, which is where I grew up recently because of some health concerns and because of some family stuff and things like that. And when you mentioned back to the Madison area, we actually saw each other face-to-face by Mesomania at the Wisconsin Grassroots Network celebration. That, I understand, is, I mean, that's your backyard, right? That's right. I grew up in Mesomania. I actually went to school at Wisconsin Heights High School, which was the location of that event. It was a little weird for me to be back in high school. (laughs) But yeah, it was good. I mean, a big part of the reason that I'm back here now is because Mesomania got really bad flooding last year. I returned home to try to be helpful, and then I'm just sort of remained here. I'm rolling with it. You know, Mesomania is still undergoing the sort of long-term recovery. One thing I witnessed that was really inspiring was that immediately after the flooding, neighbors and family members, like, really did a great job of helping people out, helping each other out in order to clean out the flooded, moldy stuff. But, you know, when people lose their water heater and their furnace and they don't have flood insurance, many folks are still in a really tight spot even now, something like eight months later. That recovery process is very slow, especially in small towns like Mizomini. So which came first, the chicken or the egg, your involvement with the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief Network, or the need to come back to Mazomani, the kind of the hometown, to do disaster relief? I had my first experience doing grassroots humanitarian aid through a group called Common Ground, which was in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina in 2005-2006. 
And that was a very transformative experience for me and many other people. And a number of us from that group and other similar sorts of groups like Occupy Sandy, which is what Occupy Wall Street turned into when Hurricane Sandy hit New York, and groups like West Street Recovery, which was a neighborhood organization that rose up to help people in Houston after Hurricane Harvey. There's a lot of folks who have this previous experience and have learned some lessons and have come to realize that there's a need for a sort of standing network of people who are ready to respond to this stuff and are preparing rather than just reacting because with climate change, you know, happening, if not in the future, it is happening right now. And these types of disasters are becoming more and more common. So some of us who knew each other from Common Ground got together and began to get the gears turning, began to lay the foundation for what would eventually become mutual aid disaster relief. I don't know, we probably started about five years ago, something like that, and it's been just gradually getting the, the foundation under it. And then since summer of 2017, well, since hurricane season 2017, our group has really expanded very, very rapidly because there's just so many catastrophes happening and there's so many people worrying about these things and they want to be a part of our group. They want to be a part of this movement in a way. It's a movement more than anything. The organization, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, came, I went on this educational tour in spring of 2018, and then I was supposed to be on another tour in fall of 2018, but I had to bail out of the tour. The rest of the team went on without me and visited a whole bunch of locations in the western part of the U.S., but I had to skip out because Mesomania got flooded, and I felt like I had to do that instead. So rather than chicken versus egg, I might actually frame that story as being just like that early in my life. You know, I was probably 21 years old when I went to New Orleans, which was just a couple weeks after Hurricane Katrina. You know, it became pretty apparent to me at that point that this type of work was valuable in its own right as a way of just being helpful and also like building relationships and making new friends and also that it was really visible to me that doing community organizing work in response to a disaster or a crisis scenario, it has this great potential. In a sense, there's opportunity in crisis because when a catastrophe happens, all the normal systems that regulate what people can and cannot do in their daily lives tend to break down. And what that means is that this space opens up where people have possibilities that they wouldn't normally have in their normal lives. I've been making this work a part of my life for a number of years now because I feel like it has great potential to be a catalyst for positive change in our country and in our culture in general. I want to talk about the specifics of what Mutual Aid Disaster Relief does and what your role as Tyler Norman in it is. But first, I wanted to fill in a little backstory. When I last had you on, which was, uh, I think, 2014, I had you on Spirit in Action. We were talking about the Beehive Collective and the Mesoamerica Resiste panorama, I guess I'd call it. So I'm going to try and trace the steps from Beehive and Mesoamerica Resiste to this. 
How do you see the similarities or differences between what you're doing with mutual aid disaster relief and what you are portraying and explaining and educating about with Mesoamerica Resiste? Sure. The connection there is, you know, not really huge. I mean, frankly, doing art education and putting tarps on roofs and gutting out moldy drywall, like, really are about as far apart as you can get. The thread that they do have in common is that all the work that I've been getting involved with has a goal of challenging capitalism and the oppressive systems that all of us are caught up in currently, and also of empowering folks to stand up for themselves and to collaborate with each other in order to figure out ways that we can work together to make our lives better. So I think in that sense, both projects have that sort of approach in common. Why did you bring your information on mutual aid disaster relief to the Wisconsin Grassroots Network celebration, besides the fact that it was in your old high school? Well, I was just trying to get reconnected and meet folks. I mean, I think that I, I, I didn't particularly bring any information to that event. I didn't have a table or anything. I just Except for talking to, to me, you. of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was, yeah, I was just trying to get connected with folks. Some of the members of the Wisconsin Grassroots Network Organizing Committee have expressed interest in scheduling some presentations or workshops with some of their local groups. We've been conducting this sort of national scale training and organizing tour. And we've stopped at a number of places in Wisconsin, but not that many. There's plenty more, and the stuff that we're bringing is useful to just about any community. So I'm excited about the idea of bouncing around to a bunch of rural towns in Wisconsin and sharing information about disaster preparedness and also meeting more folks who are interested in that type of stuff and learning from them. That's what I'm hoping for. I I have high hopes that being connected with the Wisconsin Grassroots Network and other groups that are just starting up now, like there's a mutual aid network that's based out of Madison, and this idea of mutual aid and this idea of supporting each other through crises, especially climate change-related, like bad weather events, is something that is appealing to so many people right now because it's becoming very obvious that it's just something that we just simply need to do together. I want to explore the links. Uh, You said there's a kind of a tenuous link, but I think it's actually a bit stronger than that. And it has to do with the worldview analysis that you've been living since you were involved with the Beehive Collective and other folks, and kind of the assumptions, the worldview that generates the energy for mutual aid disaster relief. On your website, which folks is mutualaiddisasterrelief.org, one of the things it says that the group does is that you listen to affected community members and respond with supplies, work crews, and amplifying the grassroots community-led initiatives that blossom following disasters. There's this incredible mutual support. So often in the rest of our life, people say, I'll have the government do it or the, you know, the market will take care of it. But when Sandy happens or when Katrina hits or so many of these large-scale disasters, the government isn't equal to it. It really calls upon the spirit of the American people to step forward and do something about it. And that grassroots community-led initiative, as opposed to government or capitalism-supplied needs, it seems to be a part of the fertile ground in which you grow. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I would say that, you know, often that I say that our work is about support 
supporting neighbors helping neighbors in times of crisis. And even though our group has grown enormously over the course of the last year, it's, we're still just a really small collection of people. So most of the work that we engage in is about exactly what you said. It's like locating folks who are already helping out their neighborhood. I mean, we often say that the real first responders in any situation are the neighbors, and we should, you know, give them credit for that. But, you know, oftentimes we find that we're using our Internet presence to redirect donations of supplies and money that people want to give directly to groups on the ground. You know, it's like, if you don't want to donate to the Red Cross, don't donate to Mutual Aid Disaster Relief either. Donate to West Street Recovery, which is active post-Hurricane Harvey. Here's a link to their thing. Go directly to them. And, you know, sort of rerouting these donations to folks who are most affected and therefore most effective at getting the resources to those who need them the most. And by doing that to empower the folks who are in most situations, they are the communities that are most marginalized. They're poor people, they're people of color, they're queer people. Like these are the folks who don't get any help whatsoever after a hurricane or a fire. I don't know if you've seen this on the news or read about it, Mark, but in California, when all the fires were raging, they had prisoners out there fighting the fires. These prisoners were getting paid $1 a day to risk their lives. And we just see so many stories like this where if the government does respond, which sometimes they don't at all, like Mazomani didn't get any help. They sent a few people to go door-to-door with clipboards, and then those people never came back. But if, if a community does get help, only the people who are relatively more privileged to begin with get help, and the people who are in the most difficult situations are oftentimes ignored. Another example, is it's really common practice by the Red Cross and other big charities to not allow people who were homeless before the storm into one of their shelters. If you are a homeowner whose home was ruined, we'll give you a bed. If you're a person who's had an unlucky life, you were out of doors before the storm, you can just stay there. We don't care about you. And, you know, we see things like that and are just, like, disgusted by them. And so we wanted to model a different way of being there for people and supporting each other in a collaborative horizontal, empowering way, and that's why our main slogan is that we say we're working with solidarity, not charity. I think that's a really interesting idea that we should be having a national conversation about because this this country is full of charity organizations, and the very biggest ones, like the Red Cross, for example, are super corrupt and are the evidence shows that they're not actually helping people very much. And yet, there are so many individuals who just are full of love and compassion for their like fellow humans, and they want to help. And all of those people, they need to stop giving their money to the Red Cross and instead find organizations like ours or start your own community organizations to take care of one another because that person-to-person aid that is based in relationships and empathy and action is what actually improves people's lives rather than just saying, well, I'm sure FEMA's going to take care of it or I'm sure the Red Cross is going to do something about this, right?
Yeah, in local empowerment, self-empowerment is yeah. such an important thing. I find it interesting. A lot of people would probably say that you, Tyler Norman, and the people you're associated with are on the liberal progressive edge of the world, very concerned about justice in all its various hues, and that is often ignored by the mainstream. So from that point of view, people might say, well, liberals always tend to have the government as a solution, and clearly that's not what you're advocating. When you say solidarity, not charity, that is a radical shift for what the conservatives normally try and address. Could you spell out more of what that difference in philosophy is? What groups you find getting support from, for instance, when you're mentioning going around to small towns around Wisconsin, small towns are known to be the conservative, the Republican haven, and yet there's a fertile ground for your message there, right? Yes, that's an interesting question. I think I have a long answer to it. I'll do my best to not ramble and go on a bunch of tangents. I will say first that we work with all kinds of people. We have done work with really radical black power and brown power kind of organizations that are explicitly anti-state, anti-white supremacy, pro-black nationalism or brown nationalism type of things. These are groups that are going to be seen by most as being far on the left. And then we've also worked with plenty of groups that are, you know, farmers organizations, churches, you're more typical sort of top-down, well-organized Christian charity organizations, which are like tend to be pretty conservative. And then there's a whole spectrum in between. And many of us who started this organization actually don't identify ourselves on that spectrum at all. This is a, it's, it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to explain it succinctly, but there is a collection of ideas that were really blossoming in the working class in the United States and in Europe in the early 20th century. And back in those days, they used these three words interchangeably. They used the word anarchism, they used the word communism, and they used the word libertarianism. And those people who used those words, they kind of meant all the same thing to them. And nowadays, each one of those words is like a dirty word to somebody. So I kind of try not to use any of them because uh, they tend to like make the uh, conversation stop, right? Like communism has been associated with extremely problematic form of radical leftism. Libertarianism is an equally problematic form of radical right-wing sort of ideology. And most people nowadays think that anarchists are crazy people who throw bombs for no reason, which is not true at all, but like a lot of government and sort of pro-capitalist propaganda has convinced many people that that is the case. My definition of anarchism is that it's just the most utopian ideal of democracy. Anarchists are people who believe that we can take care of ourselves and that we can make decisions for ourselves and that the best way to run a society is to give people responsibility to take care of one another. And I was talking about an ideology that was very popular in the early 20th century. It's coming back throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, and even more so today than ever before, this ideology is becoming really popular, and nowadays people generally call it anarchism, though there are some other terms that you might, you might hear terms like social ecology, or you might hear terms like libertarian communism. point is that the worldview that I'm referring to right now is one in which we believe that people 
are capable of deciding for themselves what they need, and they're capable of working together to get those things, and that humans' natural default behavior is not to ruin each other's lives and be selfish and be destructive, and that we do not need to be constantly surveilled and pushed around by police and things like that. And so we are trying to create a society that's more in line with human dignity and with justice and liberty are like two concepts that actually kind of conflict with each other sometimes. It's like, if I want maximum liberty, it might infringe upon your idea of justice. If I want maximum justice, it might restrict your liberty, right? However, we can find some common ground between those two things by talking about human dignity and the importance of that, respect for one another, honoring and listening to one another, understanding that we are a part of the earth and that we are neither the owners of the earth who can trash it any way we want, nor are we like God's mistakes who just can't do anything right. Like we actually, we are a part of the earth and we are all a part of one another. Those of us who work with mutual aid disaster relief, we believe that it is possible for humans to work together and cooperate and collaborate in such a way that we uplift and empower each other, all of us. We especially believe that if we reach out to the communities who are most marginalized and most oppressed and we try to bring them into the center, then we can begin to upend the sort of societal pyramid scheme where a smaller and smaller group of people are controlling more and more resources and the rest of us are just basically getting screwed over. We can make moves towards a society where human rights are respected, where people share with one another, etc. And we have seen, working with Common Ground and working with Occupy Sandy and other organizations that have formed in the wake of hurricanes and fires and, and, and floods, we have seen that when the systems that manage society every day, when those systems break down, Rather than everything going to hell and people killing and raping and, like, stealing 24-7, that's not actually what happens. Like, what actually happens is that mostly when the systems of oppression and the systems of governance and, like, societal management, when they break down, most people immediately step up to help their neighbors. And they show the very best version of themselves. And we are constantly being told like it was so apparent after Hurricane Katrina when the, when the news was showing videos of people like taking food out of grocery stores and they were like, they're looting, they're destroying the city, right? What actually, like we are told that when a disaster happens, everyone is going to panic and they're going to turn into animals. Actually, that is evidence of the elites, the people who have the most control and have all the money and all the property, they are the ones who panic. They are the ones who flip out, bring in private mercenary security forces to like attack people in their neighborhoods. They're the ones who send in ice raids after a hurricane. Instead of helping people, they like deliberately go in and hurt people. They're the ones who are doing all that kind of stuff. And it really tells you a lot about their attitude and their moral values. I think one of the most important things that we need to do is to change this narrative because when people hear that there's a hurricane coming or something like that, they just they get so terrified. 
they're terrified because they're like imagining that it's going to turn into like a zombie movie or something where everyone's just like killing each other. And I saw violence in the wake of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, definitely, especially amongst like drug dealers and stuff. When there were so much less people in the city, you know, there was like all the drug dealers came back, but they didn't have as many customers, so they started fighting with each other over turf, and it got really gnarly. But that was actually a normal part of New Orleans before the storm anyway. The majority of the violence that was happening actually was either police or white supremacist vigilantes. But then what did you see on the news, right? After Hurricane Katrina, everything you saw on Fox News was like, look at these black people looting stores. And they're like, you know, carrying bread, right? But then what I saw on the ground in New Orleans, what I saw with my own eyes and what I heard from people telling stories of what it was like immediately after the storm, you know, it was people with relatively more privilege and in most cases white skin were like, attacking poor people of color, either because they were the police or because they wanted to pretend to be the police. I've seen video interviews of white men saying it, it's open season on N-words, right? Like, you know, this is in New Orleans a few days after Katrina, and it's so important that we recognize that disasters, like big catastrophes, are opportunities for us to make positive change. You know, when the systems break down, we can jump in there and try to carve out a little more space, a little more breathing room for ourselves, so that when those systems come back online, we're a little bit more powerful, we're a little bit better connected to one another, we're a little bit more brave and hopeful. And it's so important that we do that because if we don't do that, there's this thing, I mean, there's a name for it now. Naomi Klein wrote this excellent book called The Shock Doctrine that's all about disaster capitalism, which is basically like, if you're familiar with the term neoliberalism, neoliberalism is disaster capitalism. It's basically about aggressively attacking the support systems and the just sort of like the normal daily services that people are accustomed to and cause these shocks in society so that people get disoriented, and whether that's caused by an unexpected natural disaster or an expected, like, war or something like that, and then to move in during those periods of shock and to take a bunch of stuff, take land, take public services and privatize them, things of that nature. We saw a lot of that in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and, of course, we, in other countries we see it. Half of the infrastructure in, in Iraq was built and is owned by corporations from the United States. That was very intentional. That was no act of God. That was a deliberately planned shock that was delivered to that country by the U.S. military. And then all these corporations like Bechtel and Halliburton and et cetera reaped the profits. So when uh, people are disoriented, afraid, when they feel completely powerless, they tend to give their assent to power at certain levels. And if that happens to be a, a corporation or a government figure, they 
perhaps relinquish more of their initiative. We'll get into more of that very soon as we speak with Tyler Norman of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. But first, I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. Since 2005, we've been producing these visits with people who are doing good work of healing the planet. And that takes place in so many ways, shapes, and forms. And we're talking about part of that with Tyler Norman and Mutual Aid Disaster. Relief. Also on our website, there's place for comments. When Tyler talks about the way that we can communicate and work together, commenting is one of the ways that you reach out and make your voice available. We need to hear you. It can't be just my voice or Tyler's. We need community to work together well. There's also a place to donate for Northern Spirit Radio. I'm not saying that our need is as great as the people who were hit by Katrina or Hurricane Sandy or any of these other things. I'm saying that in order to get the word out. We need your support. And so please click donate when you come. Other means of communication, other means of media and getting the word out are extremely, extremely important. So please start with the community radio station and groups like website mutualaiddisasterrelief.org. Start there. Your donations will engender a lot of healing work for the world. So please start by supporting these groups. And again, we're talking with Tyler Norman. Is it correct to say, Tyler, by the way, that you're part of the steering committee? That is correct, yes. Okay. You're not organized exactly as other groups are organized. On your website, it says, we believe in horizontalism, decentralization, and that the most effective solutions and actions take place at the level of those closest to our problem, which is a very different idea from, obviously, many liberals think that government is a solution. You, It's a top-down solution. And those on the conservative end, obviously, think that as well. Internally, what's your form? of organization? Actually, we are currently having some conversations about that. Our organization has grown much more rapidly than we ever expected, mostly just because 2017 and 2018 were just really terrible years for hurricanes and fires. So we're actually outpacing our principles. We're kind of figuring out how we want to change, like what changes we want to make to our organization. But I will say this. So Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is an organization. It is a registered 501c3 nonprofit, you know, which we did in order to get some grants to do our work effectively. But we're a really small group. We're all volunteers. And in a way, the organization is not actually the most important aspect of the work that we're doing. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is also a network. I like to think of it as a movement. It is an inspiring idea that more and more people are becoming a part of. And so sometimes people say that mutual aid disaster relief, more than anything, it's a tactic. It is a type of activity that we all engage in. Our shared values and our shared style and our shared activities are what make us a part of this group and a part of this network and this movement. But a lot of people come and go very rapidly. A lot of people are never officially a part of mutual aid disaster relief because they've got their own local group that they identify with. But we consider them a part of mutual aid disaster relief because that's what they're doing. They're doing mutual aid. And so if there's anything that we can do to support them in that work, they don't have to be a part of our organization. We don't have local chapters, nothing like that. We actually have a very different approach to this than what 
your typical uh, liberal nonprofit or like a charity organization has. The educational element of our work, we've come to realize it's actually even more important than we thought at first because that educational work is the means by which we help people to understand that mutual aid, which means simply giving of ourselves to others with the trust that those others will come through for us when we need them, that type of activity is just the normal thing that people do every single day with their friends and with their family. Unfortunately, in our society, we're discouraged from participating in mutual aid because we have this culture that encourages us to be isolated individuals. It encourages us to be competitive. It encourages us to be hateful and spiteful. And it really breaks apart community a lot. And so even though every single person on the planet engages in mutual aid almost every day, a lot of them, especially in this country, they only give that aid to certain people. You know, it's like only their friends or only white people or only people of their same socioeconomic class. To a great degree, I think our work that is most valuable is when we are modeling a way of just being in the world every day that centers mutual aid as a daily practice that builds relationships and builds community and builds trust and builds empowerment and builds joy and connection and can be the basis for really authentic and fulfilling ways of living our lives. So that's kind of a long answer to basically what I'm trying to get at is that, in my opinion, mutual aid disaster relief is a movement. It is a grand experiment in changing our priorities and our goals in life to be really collective and to be really humanitarian in a profound, radical way. We're still figuring it out, like what that exactly looks like, but we, a lot of people are really tired of the mainstream U.S. culture, and a lot of people that we've been meeting over the last couple of years are super excited to join us in this journey. And and that's really inspiring to me. And what Tyler Norman is talking about is Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. If you go to their website, mutualaiddisasterrelief.org, one of their menu items is info. And under that, you have listed, I like the name, co-conspirators. It's your co-workers, your allies in this work, and includes a rich array of people. And when you said, Tyler, that you don't have to become a member, it's that your work is overlapping, you're co-conspiring, if you will, in this movement. So the Dandelion Network or Another Golf is Possible or Black Flag Search and Rescue Big Door Brigade, Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, all of these different groups somehow work alongside and you cross-fertilize, I think. Can you spell out for me a little bit more? I, I still feel kind of hazy about in which way you do your work. You were talking about going around doing education. It's a little hazy, and, and we are still figuring this out because the one thing that is really clear to everyone is that the need for our work outstrips our capabilities by about a million to one. We talk a lot about the need to not only respond with aid in the situations of bad weather-related 
so-called natural disasters, but to understand that there are these invisible disasters of racism and grinding poverty that are like inescapable. And there are these sort of daily disasters of segregated and underfunded school systems that are discouraging to the students, like are really just like crippling to the students who are a part of them environmental pollutants that cause whole neighborhoods that are always poor people, they're always people of color, and this whole neighborhoods have like sky-high cancer rates and things like that. Like these are also disasters. And a lot of people who are a part of our network are doing work that responds to these disasters every single day. They do children's free breakfast programs, or they do free clinics or they're part of a street medic organization that shows up every time there's a big protest and they can be there, you know, to help anyone that gets hurt during the protest, things of this nature. And the work that Mutual Aid Disaster Relief proper is engaged in, because we're a small group of people and we can't possibly respond to everything, what we are mostly doing is fielding questions like, the people who started the group West Street Recovery in Houston after Hurricane Harvey, they reached out to us and said, we need help. Like, we're in over our heads. This is really complicated. And we said, well, we will tell all of our friends that you could use a hand, and if they can make it to Houston, great. But I don't think any of us can make it. But what we will do is we'll spend hours and hours on the phone with you, walking you through all of our experiences in New Orleans, talking about what worked and what didn't work, give you some ideas of how you could organize effectively, just try to give as much good advice as possible. And then, in some cases, members of our group go to the places and, and set up food distribution or set up water distribution or set up a free childcare or set up a small free clinic or do roof tarping or organize cleanup squads to, you know, take out the moldy drywall or, like, whatever it is that's needed. There's a bunch of people who created this local organization in a town called Lumberton in North Carolina after uh, Hurricane Florence. Lumberton is an indigenous community, the Lumbee people, and they have always been very poor and really marginalized. And folks in that region, they identified these people need help more than anyone else. So we're going to focus all of our energy on connecting with them. And not only are we going to help them, but we're going to learn from them. This is a solidarity relationship. It's a two-way relationship. We're not these powerful charity givers, and they're just these powerless victims. We're working together side by side because ultimately we're trying to create a society in which everyone can live up to their full potential. And so that means that, you know, when you have that kind of attitude, helping another person can very much be helping yourself. It no longer has this somewhat problematic, somewhat disrespectful sort of charity approach. And, and in case, if you're wondering, like, why is charity so bad, I'll just put it this way. If you were the recipient of charity, how would you feel? Bad, right? Like everyone does. Nobody wants to get charity. Why is that? Because it makes you feel bad, right? So giving charity makes you feel good, but why should you feel good at the expense of someone else feeling bad? Like they're, you know, they're an inferior human or something like that. So instead, we still do the same activities, but we do it with a different attitude. And we involve everyone. We make it welcoming and we make it accessible and we make it participatory, and we make it so that it's friendly and not like lots of paperwork and bureaucracy and other things that, drive, that like make people feel dehumanized. 
What specific steps do people take if they want help? What do, they send an email, they call a number, they fill out a form. We have a Facebook page and a website, and you know, an, uh, a bunch of other social media. There's a number of ways to get in touch with us. The vast majority of people who do contact us do it through our Facebook because that's just you know obviously a popular platform. In general. What will happen is members of our network will go and do work on the ground if they're available. And folks like the Dandelion Network, that's a group of people that's based in Nebraska, mostly Lincoln, but a few from outside of Lincoln as well. And they formed after our training tour went through Lincoln in the fall. They were really inspired and they said, we should have a disaster preparedness group here in Lincoln. So let's start one. And then that big flood happened in Nebraska just a few weeks ago, and so the Dandelion Network is actively engaged doing flood relief in indigenous communities and other poor communities that are in the northeastern part of Nebraska, oh, and some in Iowa as well. That's just a perfect example. They are not a chapter of mutual aid disaster relief, but as far as we're concerned, they are a part of our network, right? So hopefully that kind of gives you the sense of how we organize, and it is it is really different than your typical NGO because, right, like most NGOs are constantly stressing out about brand management and all this sort of stuff because they need to prove how effective they are so that they can continue to get boatloads of funding so that they can pay their oversized staff and things like that. But we have this completely inverted approach where we're trying to keep our organization as small and light as possible so that rather than the organization turning into a kind of gatekeeper or like maybe even a roadblock to getting the work done effectively. Instead, the organization is really just like a signpost. If anyone is out there looking for mutual aid after a disaster, they're going to find our organization. and We may not actually show up to help them, but we will do everything in our power to connect them with people who are close by. And that was a big part of the educational aspect is that it, we're not only educating others, we're also getting a lot from them. We traveled to 50 locations, like 52 locations, I think it was, all around the U.S. in 2018. So now we know where there are a lot of people who are interested in this type of stuff, and we know where they're located, and we have their contact info. The technical aspect of it, we still haven't figured out, but we want to figure out a way to put all of these people into communication with each other so that we're essentially jump-starting a network which will become its own beast, right? And we'll just kind of, it will do whatever it will do. The way I think about it often is that those of us who are on the steering committee, about three or four years ago, we started pushing a snowball down the hill. And at first, it took a lot of pushing, but at this point, it's got so much momentum behind it that it's just going. And we're kind of like running to keep up with it, and we'll see where it goes. But it's definitely generating this power and inspiration that is, like I said, I, I really do believe that we are at the beginning stages of what will eventually become a very powerful movement. In a time of great need, actually. Yeah, in a time of great need. It's like, it's the changes that we need to make. Empowering local communities, empowering people to solve their own problems is not a moral or ideological imperative. I mean, I kind of think it is, but like, we are not going to survive if we don't take that approach.
You know, when you talked about the organizational challenges of growing so fast, I was just kind of grinning in the back of me with this kind of bizarro universe where, therefore, the mutual aid disaster relief goes from its horizontal and decentralization principles and hires a CEO with a seven-digit salary. I think that would be uh, horribly bizarro, amusing, and uh, appalling. And I realize there's no danger of it, right? But there could be. I mean, that's, that is the reason we have these regular conference calls. It's been happening over the last few months, and they are ongoing because we're trying to figure out how do we organize ourselves, what agreements and protocols do we need to put in place so that we are empowering ourselves to get a lot of stuff done without getting bogged down in some sort of bureaucratic technicalities. A lot of people who start horizontal organizations make a mistake in saying, we need to decide all of our decisions by consensus, and every single thing that we do has to get agreement from every single person every single time. And that sounds nice if you're into like political purity or whatever, but the reality of like how it plays out is that oftentimes those groups that insist on that don't actually get anything done because they just get stuck talking in circles in pursuit of being in perfect agreement about everything all the time. Our group is very diverse and we're spread across the country. That's never going to work for us, I'm sure of it. But we still, at the same time, we need to stay in communication with one another. We need to say yes to each other. We need to encourage each other to have initiative and to start new things and to ask for help, you know, when we need it. But at the same time, we also need to be careful that there's not anyone who's making a mistake and therefore giving all of us a bad name. This thing of having a sort of distributed network model of organizing for change is very exciting because it's very powerful, but it's also very dangerous because I will give a specific example. I won't name them for the sake of just being tactful, but there is a group that's based in Northern California. They're like in a neighboring town to Paradise, California, the one that got totally destroyed by the campfire. They had been to our workshop on the fall tour, and they were inspired by our work. And then the fire happened, and they said, we're going to do some mutual aid in our community. They put up an online fundraiser, and they raised tons of money. And then so far, months have gone by, and they haven't spent any of it. And they claim that the reason they haven't spent it is because they're going to be absolutely sure that they spend it on the right thing, and they're not going to make a mistake and spend it on the wrong thing. But it seems that months later, they still can't decide on what is the right thing, and there are a whole bunch of people in other parts of California who are pissed off at them because they're like, we gave you money because we thought you were going to help people, and you're not doing anything with it. And there's kind of like a lot of drama happening around this, and some of that slack is coming back on us who have nothing to do with that except for... Uh, You're co-conspirators. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, we are. I mean, they, like, we told them about some ideas and they took those ideas and ran with them. And they also, like, took our logo, which is, like, a little bit, makes me a little nervous. Like, oh, my God, people are going to think that we're being hypocritical or something like that because they're going to conflate this group with ours. So there are some dangers to doing this type of organizing, but I believe that what they call distributed networking model of organizing is 
it's kind of a new strategy, relatively new. We've been making it up as we go, doing whatever makes sense as the organization evolves. But we recently stumbled upon some publications that were from these like movement think tanks that are talking about how distributed networking model of organizing is like the hot new thing. Everybody should be doing it. And there is something to it. It's like it's an exciting idea to people. If you come and you tell people, here, we have a concept, and you can take this concept, and you can run with it, and we'll be your friends, but we won't tell you what to do. People hear that, and they're like, okay, cool. <laughs> and then they just go. Whereas making things more top-down or saying, you know, in order to be a part of our movement, you have to sign this paper, and you have to pay us monthly dues, and you can only wear our T-shirts when you do a protest, or like things like that. I don't know about you, but they make me not want to participate, and I think it's true for a lot of others as well. It doesn't make people feel like they actually are improving their own lives, but instead that they're just following a script, which in some cases is the right thing to do. But in a disaster scenario, I guarantee you it's not the right thing to do because every time that systems break down, every time that there's an enormous catastrophe that throws everything into turmoil, the situation is completely unique. There is no disaster scenario that is exactly the same as a previous disaster scenario. They're always different. And having a way of organizing that encourages people to figure out their own problems and to communicate with each other and to learn from past successes and mistakes, but really that your problem can only be met with your solution, I think is just the nature of these situations. You know, I, I'm kind of chuckling on my side because I think you know I'm Quaker. Yeah. And Quakers have been practicing distributed organization like that since the mid-1600s. The secular thing called consensus really has its history in the Quaker way of decision-making. Yeah. So how to deal with that and the problems uh, – their experiences all along the Quakers have had with these people say they're Quakers, but they're not acting in a Quaker way. If you just study the history... really familiar kind of pattern, right? Yeah, the, so the learning has been going on more than 350 years about how to do that kind of thing. And it makes a tremendous difference to me. I can't be part of a different religious spiritual group, in part because that is the way I feel I need to work and live. And so anyway, I appreciate how much work you're doing with that. Yeah, and, and I want to respond to that by saying that I have worked with groups that do consensus-style decision-making and other styles of decision-making. You know, I have a lot of experience with what works and what doesn't work, and I am not completely opposed to consensus-style decision-making, and I am familiar with its Quaker roots, and I think that with certain groups, it is an excellent way of having a conversation and coming to decision. What I've seen is that it works well with groups that are relatively homogenous, culturally speaking, and already trust each other. But then if you have a group of strangers, different races and different economic classes and have very widely divergent life experiences, and you tell them that we can't do anything unless every single one of us agrees in every single way, you might as well just go home. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, <laughs> oh, it, yeah, you got you like to gotta vote. You know, sometimes you, gotta, sometimes you have to understand that different processes work for different situations. And I think one of the things that I really like about Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is that we have a commitment to being not 
dogmatic. And analyzing every situation that we find ourselves in and coming to a conclusion together about what is the best way to respond to that situation and in including everyone who's affected. So the principles of consensus in the sense of those who are most affected should have the most say, those sorts of sentiments are still present in everything that we're doing. Yeah, we just recognize the need for being really flexible in our actual procedures of how we actually get things done. Part of the history that I was referring to that I don't know if you've read up or learned anything about, but the, when the American Friends Service Committee was established back right after World War One, right around that time, the Belgian Relief Project, uh, the whole disasters that were happening in Germany and other places in Europe, Quakers took the lead in these, including the person who became President Herbert Hoover, were extremely involved in disaster relief all over, but coming from this deciding in unity format. So how do you do disaster relief in unity in a totally culturally different place? I mean, it happened in Biafra, in Nigeria, and that war, all over these places. So there's a lot of experience there that probably there would be some good cross-fertilization to learn about how you can actually do that. Yep, I really appreciate that. I'm really glad you mentioned that, and I didn't know that history that you just mentioned. I will say that we definitely have made a bunch of connections with Quakers already. On our tours, several of our presentations were in friends' meeting houses in different cities, and it is abundantly clear to me that you know your community is very much in line with what we're thinking just by its very nature, and I think that's awesome. Well, I think what you, Tyler Norman, and the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief Network are doing is so needed. I know these disasters with climate change happening, and it's not just that. The disasters, as you said, are happening because we have a capitalist system or because there's authoritarian system or because someone is power hungry. And all of these things happen, and what you're modeling and working on and supporting is making a big difference in the world. And I know we're at the beginning of it. I do mm -hmm. want to encourage people to go to mutualaiddisasterrelief.org. Find out where you can partner, be fellow travelers, be co-conspirators, as it says on the website, to make that kind of change in the world manifest, make the world a better place, and provide for our future generations and ourselves by our work. So thank you, Tyler, so much for joining me for Spirit in Action and doing this work long term. Yes, thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. And again, folks, we're speaking with Tyler Norman of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. MutualAidDisasterRelief.org is the website. Go there, follow their work. Uh, you can see also a link. They have a MADR, the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief YouTube channel that you can connect to from there. You get a little bit more view on the ground, what it's like to be part of their organizing and educational efforts as well. I want to thank Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. Remember to check out the website. You can find the link on nordenspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every